Well, we're going to be looking at um, that passage from Philippians chapter 4 that Anthony has just read for us. We were hearing this morning, weren't we, about the the frustrations of living between the ages. And uh, particularly one of the examples was the frustration of the lockdown that we've recently been uh, uh, put under. I wonder what your response is to those kinds of frustrations. Some people, for example, uh, simply put their life on hold. They perhaps are, at the moment, wishing their life away, waiting for Easter to come when things can uh, perhaps get back to some semblance of normality. Other people, on the other hand, try and uh, live the lie that really nothing's changed at all, and they're trying to go on with as many things as they would normally do, uh, only coming up with confrontation whenever uh, other people, or the law, or whatever else it might be, gets in their way to show them um, uh, yeah, that, that they can't do that anymore. Uh, but I wonder if there's a, there's a better way than either of those two extremes. I wonder if you consider it possible to live through this next lockdown in... Contentment. Can you be content through this lockdown? Perhaps it would be easy if you had a big house in the country, big enough, uh, maybe if it had 20 or 30 bedrooms up there, you could get you and and your your family and some of your friends and you could have the UK's biggest household bubble and you could get all your servants bringing groceries up up the long sweeping drive for you and you've got all your own massive garden to do your exercise in. And perhaps if you were living in a situation like that, maybe you could be content. I imagine it's probably not too hard if you were in that sort of situation. But I'm not talking about changing your situation to become content. I'm asking the question, can you be content in your current situation? Can you be content? Is it possible? Is it achievable? In the letter to the Philippians, we hear from Paul at a time when Paul himself was in Lockdown, so to speak. He was in prison, really. Uh, He was chained up. He was prevented from seeing his family and friends. Uh, There were certainly no holidays or trips away for Paul. Surely, as bad as our metaphorical house arrest becomes, uh, it's not ever going to be quite as bad as Paul's imprisonment in Rome was. And yet, in chapter 4, verse 11, we read that Paul says, I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, but I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation. And I don't think Paul was saying that to boast. Here's some uh, super-duper guy, uh, ought we all to revere him. He's saying that as an example for us to follow. So much of what's going on in Philippians is an example for other believers to follow. And so what I want to try and do this evening is to teach you the secret of contentment. How can you be content? Now, before we start, two things to note. First, what do I mean by content? I don't mean that you prefer things this way. I don't mean even that you accept this as, well, this is just what life is about now, and we just better get on with it. Uh, There's no point worrying about things, there's no point getting annoyed by things. And I certainly don't mean uh, that this is better than what we've had previously. Instead, to be content is to recognise that the circumstances that we're in do not define you. Your hope, ultimately, is not attached 
to the resolution of the difficulties that we face at the minute. And that whatever situation we are in, in lockdown, you are still able to attain your highest goals, your ultimate purpose. That's the first thing. What do I mean by contentment? I don't mean that this is better. Uh, The second thing is that to know the secret is different to having learnt the secret. I know how to play the piano. I can show you where middle C is. And if you give me almost any piece of sheet music, I can tell you, as long as there's only a treble clef and a bass clef, let's say, okay? I can tell you what the sheet music is trying to get you to do. And I can tell you at which point in the music you've got to press which keys and how many keys have been pressed and how fast you ought to press them and how long you ought to press them for. I know how to play the piano. But can I play? No, I've not yet learned. Okay? There's a very different thing knowing how to do it and then learning how to put that into practice and your fingers being able to move across the keyboard. In the same way, the, the secret is easy to know of how to be content. It's written for us here in the scriptures and I'm going to take you to the verses that show us that detail. But in trying to teach you this evening what that secret is, I don't pretend yet to have learnt it myself. Uh, to learn it is an act that, that requires many, many uh, hours, years, decades perhaps even, of putting this knowledge into practice. And so the thing to do as you leave here this evening is not to try and remember what you heard, but to go away and put into practice the things that you've heard. That's the response that the text calls from us this evening. So, what is the secret of being content then? Two things. And firstly, the secret of being content is to know that God will meet all your needs. Know that God will meet all your needs. And again, that knowledge is not just, oh yeah, I understand it, but put that knowledge into practice day by day. In the section in chapter 4, verse 10 to 20, Paul is giving thanks for the gift that the Philippians have sent. And in this section, you see two issues coming across quite strongly. So one of the issues is Paul's encouragement and thanks for the gift that he has received. And he's encouraging the Philippians to go on being generous, keep doing it, keep offering it as a sacrifice of faith. And then the other issue that sits alongside it is this issue of Paul's contentment. Now, it's just worth noting, if you read it a bit quickly, you might notice that in verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. Uh, And you might assume, oh, does that mean, um, really, it's quite easy for him to be content, that he's got no problems, life's easy for him. Uh, It would be easy to be content in that situation, you might think. But when Paul says, I'm not saying it because I'm not in need, uh, he's not saying that he's not in need, Uh, He is in need. Uh, And you you notice that in verse 14, for example. It's good of you to share in my troubles. Uh, The point is, he's saying, my needs are not what has prompted me to deal with this issue of giving from you. Uh, My needs are not what is driving this conversation. Whether well-fed or hungry, Paul says, I will be content. Now, so you've got these two issues. Paul giving thanks for the gift and Paul describing his own contentment. And it's curious that they come together. Um, this, this famous verse in verse, uh, verse 13, it, it, it's an unusual place to find it in the Bible, the, the middle of this giving thanks for a gift. And so what is driving both of these ideas and what is it that links them both together? Well, the thing that is driving the first idea, encouragement to be generous, uh, is seen in verse 19. Why can the Philippians continue to be generous? They can continue to be generous because, verse 19, my God will meet all your needs 
according to his glorious riches in Christ. You've got no fear of being over-generous. You've got no fear of giving away your little nest egg because you might come to need it in the next few weeks. If you be generous, as a sacrifice of faith, God will meet all your needs, Paul is saying. But then implicitly, I think you can see that the answer to the second issue, Paul's contentment, is also verse 19. How can Paul be so sure that God will supply the needs of the Philippians? How can Paul be so content for himself if, uh, unless he knows that God is this type of God who will meet all of our needs? Now here's where we get the distinction between knowing and learning the secret of contentment. Because who amongst us does not know in our minds that God is a good father, that he's powerful, that he's provider, that he can give us the things we need? So often we have prayed the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. So often we give thanks at our mealtimes, thank you God for providing this meal for me. We know that God is able to to give. And we know that God does give. But that's different to having learnt it and put it into practice so that our emotions and our response to situation is not one of discontent and bitterness and anger and frustration, but one of trustful contentment. And when it comes to issues of lockdown, perhaps there's a creeping tendency to consider that we've maybe been robbed of some fundamental necessity. God is not giving me the things that I need. And perhaps you've not attached God's name to that frustration yet. But maybe it's there. There is something fundamental to life which I am not getting at the minute. And I feel like it's been robbed from me, taken from me. I feel like perhaps God has lumped all of the nation together into one big group and he's dealing with us all as a group. And he's not taking into account my own faith and my own service of him and my own needs. Perhaps you've not even been praying about the situations in lockdown and the difficulties you face because you feel them to be some sort of non-negotiable. But but have we been robbed? Is God actually denying us the things that we need? Is he? Or is he still that good God? who will provide you, who will give you the things that you need. Which is it? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying here that uh, things like education and um, uh, social interaction, uh, I'm not saying that meeting as a church and singing as part of our worship, uh, I'm not saying that these things are entirely useless or unnecessary. But what I am trying to do is get them in in a biblical perspective. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked his followers, is not life more important than food? And is not the body more important than clothes? We're quite used to thinking about Jesus' question in in response to a materialistic worldview or, or the secularism in which we live. Yeah, life is not about chasing after money and clothes and fast cars and big houses. But in lockdown, that's not what I'm after. I don't want more money in the bank. I want to see my family. I want to hug my mum. I want to go to school. I want to do my office job. I want to see my friends. I want to have a barbecue. I want to go to the beach. 
I want these intangibles. Surely that's what life is really about. Love, friendship, family, service. But what does Jesus contrast with food and clothing? At the end of that section, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Instead of those things, seek first... What's the answer? Education? Family? uh, Politics? What goes in there? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. They're the priority. They are number one. There is far more to life than education and friendship and social interaction. There is far more to life than living, even. <laughs> it's tricky to be, to, be, to be very clear on what I mean by this, because we so often use life, and the Bible so often uses life, for this life. But equally, you've got to remember that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree, when they disobeyed God, God said, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And in a biblical perspective, this existence, let's call it, this life that we have, is really death. Now what Jesus has come to do is to give us life. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Fullness of life. And yet also he's saying, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. And also he's saying, the world will hate you. And also he's saying to the rich man, give away all that you own, all that you possess, and pass it on to the poor. Well, Is this really life to the full, Jesus? You seem to be taking away everything that makes life valuable. Well, yes, if you're talking about life existence here. But Jesus has still come to give us life to the full. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you know any Christian who's never died? Well, you know me, I suppose. I've not died yet. But I I will die one day, unless Jesus Christ returns. Believers still die. And yet, Jesus says, you will never die if you've got the life that I'm here to give. This is eternal life. This is the life that Jesus has come to give. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is a life that you have been given if you're trusting Christ. There is a life that you have been given which is so much greater than anything than uh, of mere existence in this world. You share in the eternal life of the Son of God. And perhaps that life is, is better suited or better prepared for another place. But it's a life that has already begun now. You already have a taste of it now. You are already enjoying it now. You are already that new creation in Christ. Now, in Philippians 4, verse uh, 19, Paul says, God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What are we going to make of that verse? Is God going to meet our needs or isn't he? Well, Paul is not just sweeping, Paul is not ignoring the physical necessities of life. Paul himself had physical necessities and he's glad that God has provided for his needs through the giving of the Philippians. And even when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, life is is more important than food and clothing. And God is able to give 
the sparrows their food and is able to clothe the grass of the field, will he not also give you your daily bread, you child of God? Okay, so this is not totally brushing away all the physical necessities of day-to-day life. But it is to recognize that that is not all that life is about. And certainly that is not all that true life is about. The life that Jesus came to give. That's not about the physical necessities of living here on earth. And sometimes what we've got to realize is that God will remove some of those lesser necessities. Social interaction, education, work, family relationships, perhaps even food and water and clothing for some believers in some parts of the world. God will remove those physical necessities in order to teach us the value of eternal life. Paul himself, at the start of uh, 2 Corinthians, says, we despaired even of life itself. My, My ongoing existence was a burden to me, he's saying. I despaired of life itself. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but upon God, who raises from the dead. What Paul has learnt in order to be content, is that if God has not placed the things you think you need in your hands, then in reality, you do not need them. Now is not the time for me to receive them. All that I need, God will give. And if there's something that I would normally have but can't get, then it's not that God is unconcerned. And it's not that God is unable but it's because God is using this moment as a means to provide you with something that is worth far more, to teach you a far greater lesson. And no, that's not to deny your grief. It's not to ignore the urgency of escaping a situation of abuse, for example. It's not to deny the importance of communal worship together. But it is to recognize that the secret of being content in any and every situation is to know and trust that God is a God who knows your needs and is able and willing and does provide you with all that you need. That's the first part of the secret of being content. Secondly, the secret of being content is to measure your life by a heavenly metric. And this is related to the first point. By which I mean, what is, the, what is the measure that you use to assess your life? How well is your life going? If somebody asks you that, what sort of things would you look at? If somebody vocally asks you that question, we're quite good as Christians at giving a, a good sort of answer as to what sort of things we're reading and how we're serving Christ and what sort of things we're being taught from his word. But day by day, what, what, what are the things which influence our mood? and our assessment when we go to bed of whether that was a good day or a bad day. Sometimes it's things that are more like um, the behaviour or the success or the discipline of our children, how the things are going in the home, our family situation. Perhaps sometimes it's the busyness of your diary. Life is going well when I've got lots of things to do. Perhaps you measure yourself by your health or your fitness. And when you see your age or your, uh, your health waning, uh, you feel weak and unable. Perhaps you measure life by your service or utility. I've been able to do these things. I've been able to offer support in these, in these ways. Now, none of these things that I've mentioned are unimportant. 
In fact, you will find different parts of the Bible encouraging us to each of these things. Love your family, discipline your children, be useful to the people that you live with, and so on. They're not unimportant. But what happens when we make those things number one priority? What happens when they become the measure of how well life is going? Well, on the one hand, you get verses like chapter 4, verse 19. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. But then on the other hand, we get stuck in lockdown. Well, where are those glorious riches, we might ask? Where is the glory of uh, the the stable, happy family with, with successful children? Where is the glory of my usefulness and my service? Where is the glory of my rest and leisure and happiness and relaxation? And discontentment can seep in if those things have been number one priority. But Paul doesn't measure his life based on those things. He measures his life based on a, on a different metric. What is that metric? You might say, for the Apostle Paul, it would be evangelism. And certainly he does say that he makes it his ambition to go and preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached before. But for Paul, his life isn't centred on one particular goal or ambition in that sort of way. Paul has seen something of who Jesus Christ is. He gives us Uh, Such a powerful uh, glimpse of who Jesus is in chapter 2 of Philippians. That great hymn of praise to Christ. Jesus is the humble servant king. The one who's given himself in utmost obedience for the sake of his enemies. Us. Jesus is the one who has been exalted to the highest place in all of creation. Jesus is the source of all salvation, all victory, all glory and all honour. And one day, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will one day bow the knee to this Jesus Christ. And the wonder of the gospel is that for those trusting Christ, all of that glory, all of that power, all of that honour will be shared with you if you're trusting Christ, if you're in Christ. You become a co-heir with Christ. Just as Christ has been promised to, to receive these things from God his Father, So also you become a co-heir alongside him to receive that glory. And it's that knowledge that shapes Paul's life. For Paul, the number one priority is, well, it's not to be useful. It's not his preaching. It's not his popularity. It's certainly not his leisure time. For Paul, his highest, highest aim is to know Jesus Christ. It's his highest aim because it yields the highest reward. I consider everything else a loss, Paul says, chapter 3, verse 8. I consider everything else a loss compared to knowing Christ. I want to know Christ. I can see, says Paul, that that God is working everything in my life to conform me to the pattern of the life of Jesus Christ. God is working all things together to make me more like Jesus. And therefore... I can say that God is working all things together for good. And therefore, I can be content in any and every situation because my aim is not the glory of this world. My aim is to know Christ and to become more like him. Look, perhaps this lockdown has thrust you into a new situation. Maybe you are now housebound, perhaps particularly the people watching online. You're housebound in a way that you've never been before, 
perhaps your age has crept up on you and you feel weak and fragile and you simply cannot do the things that you once would have liked to have done. And yet, you're still able to to know Christ, to grow in him, to praise him and to worship him and to love him, to strengthen and deepen that relationship that you have with him. Perhaps you're run ragged trying to juggle a full-time job with full-time kids. Isn't that the exact situation? Isn't that perhaps one of the best situations to learn how to live a pattern of life which is, uh, which is the pattern of a, a humble servant giving themselves for the sake of others motivated by love? Isn't that the situation of so many mothers? So many parents who are trying to juggle all these responsibilities? A self-giving out of love. You're following the pattern of life of Jesus Christ himself. Perhaps for you, very little has changed actually through lockdown, apart from the crushing loneliness that you feel because of uh, the limited interaction we can have with others. What you've got to understand is that whether you had uh, all the friends in the world living with you, uh, whether you had all the money in the world, whether you had the best job in the world, whether you had the best situation, you would still need to learn this lesson of how to be content. And you will not ever be content unless you're able to satisfy yourself with Christ the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Before we close, I want to uh, ask the question of, well, how can we learn this then? How, how do we move from knowing the secret to learning the secret? How do we put it into practice? And how do we grab hold of this contentment? Firstly, you've got to see that it's, it's a gift from Christ. Contentment is a gift from Christ to those who are trusting in him. Chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. You see, Christianity is not just a a set of doctrines or a list of beliefs. It's not even some kind of traditional model of positive thinking to get us through life. Christianity is a, a relationship, by which I mean Christianity is personal. It is based upon a person the person of Jesus Christ, knowing who he is, uh, being filled with him, his spirit living in you, influencing you, a life lived in imitation of him, loving him, following him, and depending on him for the day-to-day needs as well as those big life decisions. And it's that dependence, it's that imitation, it's that love that really characterizes Christianity. Perhaps if you don't have that kind of relationship in what you call Christianity, maybe it's not real Christianity at all. Can you say you know Christ as a person? Can you depend on Christ? Are you following Christ? Or do you just know a bit about him because you've been coming along to church for many years? Now what if you don't have that relationship? Is contentment therefore out the window? Absolutely no hope for any contentment at all? Well, Uh, Let's be honest, Christianity isn't the only religion to promote the idea of contentment. People have been talking about contentment for literally millennia. There were people in Paul's day who would encourage others to be content. But there's a big difference in the way other religions seek contentment and the way Paul is urging Christians to be content. You see, the way, for example, the Stoics, uh, the philosophers at the time of Paul's writing, uh, the way they would want to be content is a very uh, inward-focused contentment. 
uh, you essentially work to try and detach yourself from the needs or the troubles of the world in which you live. Uh, verse 13, in, in their eyes, would be something along the lines of, I can do all things if I put my mind to it. It's a very self-dependent contentment. But Paul flips that idea on the head. He says, it's not that I can do all things if I put my mind to it. It's I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things not because of who I am and my strength and my ability, because one day that will fade. And don't you already know just how, how fickle your own uh, intentions are? If I put my mind to it, the things I put my mind to one day are not the same things I put my mind to the next day. I cannot achieve contentment through that route. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. In Christian contentment, there's no trick or ritual or habit that you've got to instill in your life in order to to take hold of this contentment. Your contentment lies in Christ and in Christ alone. And so the key to grasping this contentment is to know him, to know him more deeply and to love him. And secondly and finally, yes, contentment is a gift from Christ, but in calling it a gift from Christ, don't misunderstand how we receive that gift. Christ doesn't give his gifts in in some kind of uh, mysterious or very passive way. We don't just wait to be sanctified, like we're getting a big zap from heaven and poof, all my earthly desires have gone. That's not how Jesus works by his spirit. He uses normal means, everyday means. And you see that in the way that Paul is helped. Paul knows God's help by the Philippians sharing their real money with a real person in real time. There are things that we can do in order to develop and strengthen this contentment. There are all sorts of ways which you can remind yourself of these gospel truths, the knowledge of contentment. And the more you remind yourself of them, the the closer you will become to, to really learning them and to put them into practice each day. And there are all sorts of metaphors of that throughout the Bible, all sorts of ways of describing it. You can think of, uh, in Philippians, the idea of working out your salvation. Uh, From Hebrews, think of throwing off your sin that so easily entangles. From Peter, think about feeding on the pure spiritual milk of the word. Uh, From the words of Jesus in the Gospels, the idea of taking up your cross daily. All these are ways in which we are... uh, purposefully and continually submitting to Christ and seeking to depend upon him and follow him every day. But I want to give you a real practical example to take away this week and to put into action. It's not the only one, as I've tried to just show you, it's one out of very many means that you could use. But here's one. Pray with thankfulness. Pray with thankfulness. I could have just left it at at pray. I'm getting this idea from verse 6 of chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And what will be the result? Well, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It'd be easy to give that nice pat answer. Look, you've got to pray more. Of course we know we've got to pray more. Who, who doesn't need to pray more? Uh, but here, there's, there's the idea of praying more, but also with this, this uh, topic of thankfulness. Don't just pray uh, throwing your cares upon God. Pray with thankfulness, recognizing the things that he's already given us. 
Because what that does, it helps us move the, the knowledge that God is a good father who gives us the things we need. It moves it from the idea of knowledge to, to something that is learnt and experienced each day. I don't just know in theory that God is good. I can see it in my experience here today and I thank him for it. Now, most of you will have a time of thankfulness in your prayer every day, several times a day, when you sit down for a meal and you'll pray, thank you God for giving us this food. What I'd encourage you to do, perhaps this week, is to extend those prayers a little bit more. Don't just thank God for the food that is on your plate. Don't just thank God for your life and your existence. Thank God for the things that he is giving you, providing for your needs, even in the midst of lockdown. Thank God for the things that he is teaching you. Thank God for the the opportunities you've got to be moulded into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Thank God for the new ministries that have opened up. Uh, Thank God for perhaps some hidden benefits that maybe you've not even yet acknowledged. Use those little times of prayer before your meal to be thankful to God about the situation that you find yourselves in. But not as an end in itself. The aim of this sermon is not to try and get you to be people who are regularly thankful. That's not the goal. The goal is that you would love Christ more, that you would know him, that you would depend upon him. And so make these prayers of thankfulness as a means of reminding yourself that yes, God is the good God who gives what I need. And reminding yourself that my aim is not education or work or family or whatever else. My aim is to know Christ and to love him. Perhaps you can put that into practice on your own or with your family wherever you are this week.